Hey, Soakers, I have a podcast that I'm dying to tell you about. It's called The Pod Crashed, and it's actually an aviation disaster podcast. Now, if you would have told me that I would be totally hooked on a podcast about plane crashes, I never would have believed you, but this podcast could not be cooler. I was chatting with one of the hosts recently, and she said that it's basically true crime, just with planes instead of bad guys. And that is an accurate description. Each week, Mariah and Casey weave the details of an aviation disaster into an enthralling story. I'm obsessed. The storytelling is casual and accessible. I know nothing about planes, but they give me everything I need and I follow along with ease. Plus, how cool is it that two awesome ladies are running a pod in a traditionally male-dominated field? It may sound like an off-the-wall suggestion, but you should absolutely go give it a listen. And not to give too much away, but we actually have something exciting in the works with the hosts. So go give a listen. I think you will really enjoy it. And if you do, give them some love, leave a review, and keep supporting them. That's The Pod Crashed, and you can find it anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers, settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into bath and body parts. November 12th, 1988, a crowd started gathering outside of 1426 F Street in downtown Sacramento, California. News had come out the day before that a body had been found in the backyard. Now, 1426 F Street was a board and care home ran by a woman named Dorothea Puente. Residents who no longer lived there spoke of how Dorothea would alternatively care for them and also terrorize them. When police and TV stations and the crowd got bigger outside, Dorothea was inside and made breakfast and sat down to eat with Mervyn John McCauley. He was her long-term friend. And with their breakfast, they had vodka and orange juice. Now, Dorothea outwardly said that she hated drunks. She didn't like people who drank, but she would often drink a lot in private. Now, Mervyn and Dorothea were both in their 60s, and Mervyn was an alcoholic who had tremors due to that, and his hands were always shaking. Mm -hmm. Now, the body that had been found was an elderly woman who was wrapped in cloth and a blanket, which had been secured by duct tape, and the victim's name was Liana Carpenter. Puente told Macaulay that she had told the police that she didn't know anything about the body and that she had not buried anyone, and his response was, quote, That's right, Dorothea. You don't know anything about it. That's the truth. Now, Dorothea had a problem. She had been cashing Liana Carpenter's social security checks and even ordered shoes in her name after she was dead. And she knew that the police were going to find out this information. A few days prior to the body being discovered, police had actually taken Puente and Macaulay to the station. They were looking for information about a missing elderly man named Bert Montoya. 
police had sat Macaulay and Puente in the same room alone, hoping that they would kind of, you know, say something, but they didn't reveal any incriminating information. And Dorothea also had a big problem because she knew that if the police kept digging in the backyard, they would find six more bodies. <sighs> now, this house, 1426 F Street, was actually an old governor's mansion. So it was a really big. It had a lot of rooms and, you know, kind of fancy for an older home. And it was actually about five blocks away from the DA's office. And Dorothea put on plenty of nice cosmetics. She got dressed up and she would wear really fancy clothes. And all of her things were paid for by her tenants, both the living ones and the dead ones, because she was cashing some checks. Now, Dorothea put about $3,000 cash into her purse and then walked outside. Detective John Cabrera approached her. The garden was being all dug up. There were people kind of everywhere. It was a lot of people in a small space. And Puente asked Cabrera if she could walk over to the Clarion Hotel across the street to see her nephew that worked there. She said she wanted to get away from all the noise and have a quiet cup of coffee. Cabrera felt that she was trying to con him, but he asked his supervisor if she could go. And he told her she could go for a few minutes. Sure. Murder suspect with the yeah. bodies right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just, we just found a dead body in your backyard. But of course you can go. Yeah, it's loud here. We feel really yeah. bad for you. So go yes. ahead and go have a quiet cup of coffee. And when she had been gone for only about 20 minutes, they found another body buried in the yard. They now had enough evidence to arrest her, but when Cabrera went to the Clarion, of course, she, Macaulay, and her nephew were not there. Her nephew didn't even work on Saturday mornings, and she had managed to get about a 30-minute head start at this point. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I just... Yep. Big misstep. Don't know how to unpack that. Yep. Within 24 hours, a nationwide manhunt was underway. The Sacramento police were heavily looked down upon for letting her slip away, rightfully so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they kind of shredded them to bits for sure through the media because you had her right there. And it's not like she ran away. She walked away with your help. <laughs> like, and, you know, I'm going to try to put myself yeah. mentally in, in their place. And she's like an older woman. Yes. But you know she has at least one body there. Yeah. Even if she wasn't involved, keep her there to find out information. Yes. <laughs> I don't. She doesn't need to go get away from the noise and have no. quiet time. No. <laughs> and within a week, all seven bodies had been dug up. They were in various states of decomposition. Some had been there longer than a year. Some a few months. And one body was missing its head, hands, and lower legs. But again, you know, just let her go. They just let her go. One body wasn't enough. It's a two-body minimum on keeping you at the crime scene, I guess. <laughs> They're like, we have not hit that limit. Now, in 1978, Dorothea Puente had actually been placed on federal parole for forging checks. This was something that she had been doing for a very long time. Because of this, she would often be contacted by many agents who were checking on her with her parole. And she would invite them in to check her living situation. And no one knew that she was actually running a boarding house. There were never extra people around when people would come to visit. 
Now, it would have been illegal for her to run a boarding house because she was on parole. So you're not supposed to be getting income from other people and renting out your space while you are on parole. And I'm a little torn on that because I don't know that I think that just being on parole should discount you from that. But Mm -hmm. certainly being on parole for forging checks should discount you from that. So in this case, it was very warranted. I think there are certainly situations where being on parole, you get kind of put in the cycle yes. of unjust treatment. Yes, you definitely get the short end of the stick for sure. Yes, but I don't but think for that this, this is one of those cases. Yes. <laughs> now, you know, they had really started looking into her because this man, Bert Montoya, was missing. And they knew that he had been around the house. So that's what kind of got them originally looking into Dorothea this time. Bert Montoya had been working on getting help. He had been to a detox center, and unlike a lot of people at the detox center, he wasn't suffering from substance abuse. He had mental illness and special needs. He was developmentally delayed. He would report that sometimes he could hear his dead father encouraging him to kill himself, like he could hear voices. And so obviously he needed a lot of help. Dorothea met Bert in February 1988, and she was able to speak to him in Spanish, and she made him feel at ease. She made him feel at home. She would cook Spanish-inspired meals and kind of give him that sense of home, and it really seemed like she was taking care of him. Now, in August of 1988, Bert showed back up at the detox center in a really agitated state. He said that Dorothea was being unkind to him, but there wasn't really anybody else to take care of him, so they took him back to Dorothea's where he was living, and he was never seen by them alive again. And, oh, that is just crushing. Yes. To me. Yes. I I mean, I'm not going to say that they inherently did something wrong because I'm not sure what the alternative would have been. Right. If you have nowhere to go, but what do you do? You know, he came to you and he told you that something was going on. And yeah, I think, of course, that leads into a much deeper conversation about, you know, the treatment of people in this situation, the treatment of yes. people without a place to go, homeless people, yes. people with mental illness. Yes. Elderly people. Elderly like, people. Yeah. But yep. I just don't think the answer is take them back to the place that they have basically run away from and come to seek your help from. I know. Ugh. And Bert had been, you know, with Dorothea for a few months and she would often like put him to work because he was a bigger man. So he could help lift heavy things. And they were actually filling in some cement outside. And when a delivery driver came to deliver the cement, one of the drivers tried to talk to Bert. But Dorothea told the driver, you know, he has special needs and I'm really the only one who can communicate with him. He he won't even be able to communicate with you. Now, Dorothea had taken Bert to the Social Security office and had listed herself as his substitute payee. She would be able then to access his money. And she would use his checks to buy clothes for herself and designer fragrances. Now, Bert did go to a bar that was about a block away from Dorothea's. And this bar was open 24 hours. And one morning, he had a couple of beers and some food. 
and ended up passing out in the bar. And the bartender was kind of astonished by this because Bert hadn't been overserved. He wasn't drinking a lot. He just had a couple of beers and some food. And so the bartender thought with him passing out and having to be carried home, it seemed like maybe he had been drugged. But the bartender knew that he hadn't put anything in his drink, but he was acting like either he was super drunk or something was not right. On September 2nd, 1988, a call came in to the Consumer Affairs Office at the Sacramento Post Office. Now, the caller identified himself as Bert Montoya and said that he was frightened. And, you know, this woman who worked at the post office answered, and she said that she could hear a woman's voice in the background saying, quote, I'll put your ass out on the goddamn street. She could hear that over the phone. And this post office worker asked Bert what was wrong, and he said, quote, she's got my social security check and she's yelling at me. And it, that breaks my heart. It's so sad. And he said that he could not give his phone number, but he did give the address that he was at. And this is the last time anyone in public would interact with Bert. Later that same month, Dorothea was telling people that Bert had gone to Mexico to see family. And in November, social workers came by looking for Bert and Dorothea started crying, saying, you know, that she really hoped that he was going to be home in time for the holidays because she had gotten him a Christmas present. And again, I know that social workers are overloaded. We've talked about that before. Yes. But from September 2nd to November. Yep. Yep. He didn't necessarily seem like he was in immediate danger. Right. And so I understand why it took time. But I know it is just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. The system is not set up to be sustainable for the workload of social workers And like, there's no contingency plan. Mm -mm. Like people fall through the cracks. And this, you know, this was in the 80s, but that's still happening. Oh, absolutely. As he was looking into this, Detective Cabrera heard from a woman named Brenda Trujillo. Brenda was a drug addict who worked as a prostitute, and she had met Dorothea in jail in the early 80s when Dorothea was there for her forging of checks. And Brenda lived with Dorothea for a while when she got out. Brenda told him that people were dying at Dorothea's and that Dorothea was burying them. And with all of that information, that's how they started going to look into it. And that's how they ended up there on November 12th. Now, when they talked to her that morning, she said she knew it was illegal to run the boarding house, but that she just wanted to help people. Right. She just has great intentions. Mm, Yes. Cabrera brought up Puente's past crimes, and she said that all of that was behind her. She was living a new life and trying to do better. Mm -hmm. And Puente told Cabrera that you know, the only reason you even suspect me is because of my past. Like, basically trying to say, you're looking down at me like you're judging me. Yes. And then they started digging in the yard with her permission and found the first body. And, of course, she feigned surprise. Oh, yes, the shock, the shock of it. And she told Cabrera that she would take a polygraph the following Monday. And, of course, we know what happens next. They find the body. She goes to the Clarion. Once she is at the Clarion, she 
kind of checks to make sure she's not being followed. Yep. And she and Macaulay take a cab to a bar called Tiny's Lounge. Now, it was 9.30 a.m. And she ordered and drank four vodkas with grapefruit juice after they'd already had the vodkas yeah. with orange juice. That's a, that's a lot. And like, I'm I'm down for a mimosa. I'm down for, you know, but four vodkas with grapefruit juice as your breakfast. Woo. <laughs> and then she and Macaulay parted ways. He left around 10 and Puente took a cab ride for $70 to the city of Stockton, which was about 40 miles south. Now, once she was in Stockton, Dorothea went to the bus station and bought a ticket for the 2 p.m. bus to L.A., which would be a seven-hour bus ride. And she ended up checking into a hotel in L.A. for two nights. The Sunday L.A. Times printed the headline, quote, Two bodies unearthed at boarding home, manager sought. And when she saw that, she knew that she was not really free, even though she had managed to escape. Right. So she, I mean, she's only seven hours away. Like, they could still get her. She knows. Yeah. Now, that Sunday evening, they had discovered five bodies in the backyard. And Sacramento was just in an uproar because they just said that Dorothea had gotten away being helped by the police. And they're not wrong, but I cannot imagine that feeling of like, we could have had her. Like, just, oh. We've been talking a lot lately about really poor police work. Yep. And I feel a, a little bit more sympathy for these police officers because I don't yes. think it was not as yes. deliberate. No. But it was still no. bungling. Like, you still bungled it. And it wasn't, like, the fact that it wasn't just one person. Like, Cabrera asked his supervisor if she could go. Should we let this potential murderer go? Should yeah, we? let's do yeah. it. I know She's that so we're sweet. expecting to find more bodies, but... Yeah, it's a no problem, no problem. <laughs> Everything's fine here. Now, the police did pick up Macaulay as an accessory, and they knew that he was very frail, and so they thought... This guy cannot be the only one who knows what Dorothea is up to. She's got to have another accomplice that's like stronger because Macaulay is, you know, he's got tremors. He's not physically right. strong. And she's like, old. And, you know, she's very small and burying a body and that requires a lot of strength. Bodies are very hard to move. I do not know that from experience, just like from reading <laughs> yes. on the internet and like researching. Just from our but research. I don't think that I would be no. able to physically no. move a body. I've got no strength. <laughs> no, not me either. That. We're not strong no. at all. So that's why we will never no. be, no, nothing will ever be pinned on no, us. Because I would just be like, look, like, I can't lift this. <laughs> these weights here. <laughs> If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. On Monday, November 14th, William P. Wood becomes involved. Now, William P. Wood is the author of the book, The Bone Garden, which was our main source for this episode. And 
William P. Wood was the deputy district attorney in Sacramento back in the early 80s and had actually been the one to prosecute Dorothea on her original forgery and sent her to prison for five years. So William P. Wood kind of thought after he sent her to prison in 1982 that he was never going to hear about Dorothea Puente again. When this story came out about the bodies being found in the backyard, he got contacted and he met with the Sacramento police. Wood said that he thought if Dorothea had been stopped in 1982 and given a harsher sentence, this wouldn't have happened. And he's not wrong. Now, that weekend, Puente mostly stayed in her hotel room in L.A. and had very limited contact with anyone except for the woman who worked at the restaurant where she got her food. That Monday night, authorities were back in Sacramento looking in Dorothea's house, and they were looking in her bedroom. They found these pill bottles for Dalmain, which is a tranquilizer that you could get by prescription. And in the trash, they found empty Dalmain capsules, like that someone had broken and the medicine was not inside, just the capsule was there. In another room of the house, detectives noticed a very strong foul smell. And Cabrera was able to identify this smell as the remnants of a decomposing body. There had been a body inside the house. And a large blood stain was found under the carpet in that room. In their search, they also found a driver's license with the name Betty Palmer, but the picture was Dorothea. And there were also letters and bank deposit slips for Vera Martin and Leona Carpenter. They found a large envelope addressed to, quote, Dr. Dorothea Puente. And this envelope contained Bert Montoya's medical ID, veterans assistance papers for Dorothy Miller, supplemental income forms for James Gallup, letters to Vera Martin and Ben Fink, and a medical card for Betty Palmer. Basically, all of the paperwork that you would need to get benefits. She had this all in an envelope. That Tuesday, throughout the nation, agencies started looking into how Dorothea could have gotten Social Security checks cashed from her tenants each month. And, you know, she was on parole. Like, how was she doing this? And the Social Security Administration really wanted to know how had she been able to access all of these other people's money? Yes, because this isn't just she's manipulated the system once right. and managed no, to this get away is with a, it. This is an ongoing, deep-rooted thing that she has been doing to multiple people. For years and years. And Macaulay was released from jail due to lack of evidence because he was saying he didn't know anything and they really didn't have anything to pin on him. And he went immediately into hiding. But around this time, the crimes became known worldwide. It was gathering a lot of attention. And by now, it was believed that Dorothea had crossed state lines. So the FBI was brought into the case. But actually, this was Wednesday, November 16th. And so she was still in L.A. at this point. And she went to a bar and introduced herself as Donna Johansson. And a man at the bar introduced himself as Charles Wiggis. He told her that he lived alone only about two blocks away. And he was kind of taken by her and and impressed with her. She was intelligent. You know, she was well-dressed, put together. And she spun this story that her husband had died the previous month. 
she told him that she couldn't find work and that her shoes needed to be fixed. And he took her shoes and offered to get them repaired for her. Like right there at the bar. Charles is a very kind person. He's like, oh, you, your shoes really do need to be fixed. They've got holes in them. I will take them right now and get them fixed. <laughs> and I think it's so interesting because he's clearly a very kind-hearted person. But I feel like Dorothea is very manipulative and good at finding very quickly people that oh, she can yes, manipulate. Right? Like she identified him right off the bat as someone that she can get to do her bidding. Yes. Yes. And he brought her shoes back to her after they got fixed. And she asked him how he supported himself. And he said that he was sick and got social security, a monthly check for $576. And she told him that she could show him how he could easily get 680 a month instead. And she also told him, you know, the holidays are coming up and I don't want to spend them alone. Maybe I can make Thanksgiving dinner for you at your apartment. And he said, maybe. And then she goes on and says, you know, why don't we share an apartment? I can make life easier for you. Literally, she just met him. Like, this is within an hour of meeting him that she's like, why don't we just live together? I'll just move into your place. She is very bold. Very. And he was not quite all about this because he'd lived alone for a long time and he was set in his ways. But they did make plans to see each other that Thursday, which was two days later, for dinner. And on the way back to his apartment, Wilgus said that she looked familiar to him, but he didn't know where from. In the meantime, the coroner was able to identify one of the bodies that had been dug up as Bert Montoya. Now, we're going to dive a little bit into some background on Dorothea here. In 1985, when she was about to be released from prison for charges of drugging, robbing, and forgery, a psychologist did a full evaluation of her. And I just want to read the summary of that evaluation. From a medical perspective, this is what they were saying about her. And we're getting this from, from the Wood's book. book yes, right? this, this is, is straight from the book that the doctor from the Department of Corrections, this is what they wrote. Dorothea appears to disassociate herself from any of the crimes for which she has been arrested for and received time. She tends to minimize the importance of what she did and her responsibility for any of it. It appears at this time that Dorothea does not have any symptoms of psychosis, that is, hearing voices or having delusions of grandeur. She is, in fact, schizophrenic. This woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have any remorse or regret for what she has done, and who at least on two occasions has been involved with administering drugs and or poison to unwitting victims. She is considered dangerous and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. So that was back in 1985. And this story that we've been telling you is in 1988. And the fact that in that report, it says she's dangerous. She should be monitored. She's done this at least twice. And nobody just followed through with that. <laughs> and not only did nobody follow through, not only was she not being monitored, not only is she not being watched, yeah. she is operating yes. a boarding house. <laughs> yes. Where she's being bringing people <laughs> yes. in that are relying on yes. her. Yeah. It it's so much. You know, a lot of things like this slip through the cracks and I don't think that it's necessarily any one no, person or any one department. It's not any fault. one thing. It's the fact that it was 
all of the things that she was able to move on with her life like nothing happened. But I really do want to get into her background because I do think it's important that we have a full picture of who she was even in her younger years. She was born in January 1929 in California, and she was the sixth of seven children, and her father had fought in World War I. And the whole family had to work really hard moving crops. And it was hard work. And all of the children helped. Like they were working from a very young age. And Dorothea's mother drank a lot and would sometimes spend time in jail for public intoxication and would leave the kids without a parental figure for days at a time. Her father was fighting tuberculosis and his health was failing. And they all moved to Los Angeles in 1936. Her father ended up passing away in 1937, and her mother, Trudy, continued to drink and neglect her children, which caused her to lose custody of her kids. Dorothea was nine at the time and taken to a church-run orphanage, and her mother, Trudy, died in a motorcycle accident in 1938. In 1945, Dorothea was living in Olympia, Washington, and created a false name, Sherry. She worked as a waitress and also as a prostitute. During her work as a prostitute, she met a 22-year-old soldier named Fred McFall, who was determined to marry her, even though she was only 16. They did get married, and she listed her name as Sherry Ale A. Resile and said that she was 30 years old. Now, with Fred, she had two daughters, one born in 1946 and one in 1948. And around this time, she also started drinking very heavily. And she and Fred started fighting a lot. Dorothea did not want to raise the children. The first daughter was sent to live with relatives and the second was put up for adoption. And this basically just ended her marriage with Fred in 1948. This is when she started stealing checks from a woman that she was actually friends with. And she would use those checks and that money to buy clothing. She tried to buy almost $85 worth of shoes. And this is in the 40s. Like, that's a lot of shoes. And she had tried to buy about $85 worth of shoes using her made-up name, Sherrielle A. Rasile, but was denied. And the manager of the shop thought something wasn't right. And so they did arrest her for forgery. And this was the first time that her mental state was assessed by a doctor. And the doctor did not label her as a, quote, true criminal, but instead as a situational offender. And for her forgery, she was sentenced to a year in jail, but she only served four months. In May of 1950, six months after being released, she disappeared and a judge sent a warrant for her arrest because she was on probation. And she lost contact with her siblings and her whole family in the 50s thought that she was actually dead. Like no one had any contact with her. But she was indeed alive and married to a man named Axel Johansson. Dorothea would sometimes leave him for a while and go back to LA. But whenever she would return, they would fight. And by the 1960s, she was actually a businesswoman running several brothels. So around this time, one of the owners of one of the buildings she rented for a brothel was brought to the sheriff department. 
the owner thought he was renting the building as a bookkeeping business. So he was like, oh, something's not right. (laughs) Yeah. So detectives went in undercover and they arrested Dorothea and one other woman who was there. She was only given 90 days. But because of this arrest and the fighting, she and Johansson divorced in 1966. Dorothea knew that at this point, she couldn't continue being a prostitute to make money. She was nearly 40. Her appearance had changed. This was not something that could go on forever. So she started to think up ways that she could make money. And in 1968, she opened her first of several unlicensed healthcare operations, which she called the Samaritans. Oh, yes. Yes, the Samaritans. Lovely. The Samaritans specialize in helping alcoholics. And she also supplemented that income by working as a, quote, nurse, like a caregiver overnight for some elderly people. And at this point, she was calling herself Dorothea Johansson. So in public, she was hailed as a motherly, kind figure, Mm -hmm. but she was actually having issues privately. She went up to 200 pounds. She was drinking all the time. And she began dating men in their 20s. And again, she's almost 40 at this point. When she was 39, she met Roberta Jose Puente, who was 21, and they got married. And he was very boyish, very young. Didn't have a lot of life experience. Yeah, he didn't really have a clear path or a lot of skills for working. And they were only together for two weeks, which they spent fighting pretty much the entire time. And she filed for divorce in 1969. And she told people that she knew that he was homosexual. And that's why the marriage failed. And at this point, the Samaritans was $10,000 in debt. And she filed for bankruptcy around the same time that she was getting divorced from Puente. But within just a short time, she was back in business, this time with a larger building, a big white house with 16 bedrooms. And since the tenant she accepted did not require specific care medically or psychologically, she did not have to license her boarding house. Social workers found the living conditions very acceptable. She hired two full-time cooks. She would host parties for her residents. Like it seemed like it was a nice place to be, you know, like you would want your family to be there. And in the mid 70s, Puente also started tutoring young women who did not have mothers. In 1977, Puente had to have surgery to close part of her intestine. She was gaining a lot of weight, and she told her neighbors and tenants that she either had heart disease or cancer. And she told her tenants that she was probably going to die. She even had her lawyer create a will with, quote, scholarships for several of the girls that she tutored, but she didn't really have any money to support this. So it's kind right. of all for show. She's like, well, yeah, this is this is my will. And look at how generous I am. You know, I'm taking care of these girls, yes. you know. Now, Puente recovered. She married for a fourth time. And her husband was a day laborer named Pedro Angel Montalvo. And she was 10 years older than him. Montalvo was described as very excitable and energetic. And they had a very chaotic relationship. They started fighting pretty much immediately after they got married. Yeah, like one of her friends said that when she met Pedro, he was like jumping around the room and like just very high energy and seemed so much younger than he even was. Right. In 1978, the Treasury Department did start looking into the checks that Dorothea cashed And they noticed about $4,000 in forged checks. 
She was not sent to prison, but instead given five years probation and was told to seek psychiatric counseling. And at this point, she felt like everything had been taken from her and she blamed it all on Pedro Montalvo. Now, Dr. Thomas Duty was her appointed. I cannot say his name without laughing. <laughs> it is spelled D O O D Y, yes. which is even worse. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, Dr. Thomas Duty was her appointed psychiatrist. And he said that she was, quote, a schizophrenic, chronic, undifferentiated type in layman's terms that she had an emotional problem. Dorothea relocated to Stockton, California in 1979. And then a little while later, she returned to Sacramento and rented out the second floor of 1426 F Street for about $200 a month. And at this point, she was passing herself off as a nurse to the elderly. And rumors began circulating that she was stealing small things that would not be easily missed by her clients. And that's, I mean, that's a smart thing to do because they're elderly people. Mm -hmm. They're small things going missing. They could just write that off in their head, you know, like, oh, maybe I misplaced it. Like, it's a smart way to start. Yeah. Esther Busby had Dorothea as a nurse and Esther was becoming sick with odd symptoms. She was taken to the hospital a few times and her symptoms always got better overnight. People were like, oh, she's got a miracle recovery. And Mildred Ballinger worked for the Adult Protective Services and looked deeper into the hospitalizations of Esther Busby. Busby fell ill once and was taken to a hospital further away. And the doctors were looking at her symptoms and they were really thinking that it aligned with being poisoned. So they ran a talk screen and they found phenobarbital and dioxin in her blood. Now, she did not have a prescription for these medicines. And they couldn't prove that it was Dorothea poisoning her, but they did caution Esther to fire her, which she did. Around this time, Sacramento police were tipped off that a dangerous woman was loose among the sick and elderly. And Sergeant Dave Schwartz was aware that there was a suspicion around Dorothea, but there really wasn't any hard evidence. It was all just rumors and speculation. Esther Busby died in her nursing home in 1981, and her death was noted as possibly suspicious. In 1980, Dr. Thomas Coyle noticed that one of his patients had a pattern of unusual illness and quick recovery. And they found out that the patient had a home nurse by the name of Dorothea Montalvo looking after her. But because there was no hard evidence, they had no basis for an arrest and no steps were taken to arrest Dorothea. In 1982, Dave Schwartz warned William P. Wood that Dorothea was dangerous and that he should keep an eye on her. And he said to Wood, don't drop the ball on this one. There's a lot more going on than you think. She's worth the time. Like he just knew. He just knew there was more to it. Yeah. And Wood looked into the files and learned about Malcolm McKenzie. Now, Malcolm was in his 70s and a regular at the Zebra Club, which was a bar. And that's where he met Dorothea. She said that she wanted to see his apartment. And after a few drinks, they got into a cab together. But on the ride, Malcolm was not feeling well. And at his apartment, he felt like he was partially paralyzed. He couldn't move properly. 
But he was able to see Dorothea looking through his belongings and she took money and even took a ring off of his hand and left him laying on the sofa. I cannot imagine how terrifying (laughs) that is. Oh my gosh. So scary. And when he was finally able to move, he did call the police and police caught up with her as she tried to cash some of Malcolm's stolen checks. Now, she claimed that she was 72. She's actually only 53 at this point. She's like, I'm so frail and elderly. And I do think she puts on that persona. And she does look older than she is and frail. Yes. Any picture that you see of her. Yes. Yeah. She looks like she's like 170. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She said that Malcolm told her that he wanted her to have the checks and that he wanted to, quote, go steady with her. Hmm. And she told police that she had a psychiatric condition that caused her to sometimes forget her actions. She's like, I'm so frail and I also can't remember everything. And yeah, very much. She plays that up every time. Yes. Now, not long after this incident with Malcolm McKenzie, Dorothea met with 82-year-old Irene Gregory, who lived alone. And she introduced herself as Betty Peterson from the Sacramento Medical Association. Dorothea posed as Betty gave Irene pills that she said that she needed due to blood pressure issues. Irene took the pills and immediately fell asleep. And when she woke up, she was missing medicine, Dalmain, and she was also missing some of her diamonds. She called her daughter who encouraged her to call the police. And she couldn't really remember exactly what Betty looked like. And, you know, I think it's very hard to describe how people look anyway. Yes. But the following week, she was getting her hair done and she saw Dorothea and told the hairdresser to call the police. Because Dorothea's like, you know what? I'm just going to steal from this lady and then just walk by. I'm not going to even put space between us. Like, She definitely feels that she's untouchable and she's gotten away with so many things at this point that I understand why she's like, I can do whatever I want. Exactly. Dorothea claimed to know nothing about it. The jewelry was never located and no charges were pressed. Nothing moved forward with this. But Wood started digging deeper into Dorothea's past crimes. And he discovered two women, Claire Melville and Loretta Chalmers, who were both elderly and had employed Dorothea. And they had both discovered that checks and personal belongings were stolen from their home. So Wood wanted to bring them in to a preliminary hearing. And this is when he really started realizing how difficult it was going to be to nail Dorothea. Claire called him and told him that she could not appear in court because she was bedridden with illness. And the judge would not accept a written statement. And Chalmers soon after also called and said that she was too ill to appear in court. And like, I imagine that these victims of Dorothea's because they were all elderly, a lot of them had underlying conditions and they were scared. She is a scary, scary lady. She really is. Very disturbing. And Soakers, that's where we're going to leave today's episode. This case will continue to take many twists and turns. Now, if you're a patron, you can go ahead and listen to part two right away. Otherwise, tune in with us next week to hear the rest of the tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath & Body Parts.
in the mood for some Bath and Body Parts merch? Snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to get started.